So what makes for a good healthcare provider? What makes for a good leader? What makes for a good colleague? Are these one and the same? Do the universally held ideas in each of these roles hold up, or is there something that is a little unique about health? My guess is that the answers to these questions are not as obvious as we think. In this podcast, we will explore what it means to be a healthcare provider, what makes for a great physician, practitioner, leader, and colleague. We'll look at the challenges, the successes, and the struggles, and in each of them, leave you with a little bit of a reflection that you can take into your own practice. I'm Margie Sills Mayrov, and this is the B Side Stories from Healthcare Workers. Today's conversation is with Hugh McLeod. Many of you will recognize that name. He's been in the health system for a long time. He's worked in provincial and national roles, and he's just written a book called Humanizing Leadership. This isn't your average leadership book, and it's not your average perspective on leadership. Hugh really talks about leadership as being able to look at the white space, the white space between org charts, the white space of where the actual work happens, the white space of relationships. And it's not until you really focus on the relationships and the people and yourself that you get to a level of leadership where you can really make an impact. This one's a little long, but there's so much good stuff in it. As I was listening to edit, I was amazed at his perspective. So kick back, take a listen, and tell us what you think. Enjoy. So um, thank you so much for joining in this little podcast I've been doing. Um, You know, certainly I think your book... Uh, is an amazing one and one I think would be worth discussing. Um, so you've just written a book. It's just been published. Congratulations. Well, thank you. That's quite an accomplishment. And it's called Humanizing Leadership. And what, so, you know, in, in, in writing that book, this is very clearly something that is um, about your own personal journey. Would you be able to share a little bit about what that journey was like and what led you to decide to write this? Well, gee, how much time do we have? Um, mm, 30 to 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, being, I guess one could consider a junkie for leadership studies. I have a very extensive library of books and articles gathered over the years and what I found missing in the majority of the leadership material was a focus on the human side of leadership. Um, And looking at my own journey, it's a very personal journey. Mm. And to think that I can walk around in someone else's clothes and just look at someone and say, I'm going to model that leadership and be that person Um, is a fallacy. Uh, Leadership is earned. It's it's a journey of hard work. It's a a journey of taking risk, failing, growing, learning, being honest with self. And with that in mind, I began to think about 
my own personal journey and what what did I see and treasure as attributes of good leaders? Well, you're really you're really highlighting how leadership is not a individual thing; it is actually a collective thing. Well, it's collective in the sense that if you're lucky enough to be in the company of mentors and individuals who are willing to share their time, their words, their wisdom, and encouragement with you along your personal journey, you've got a good head start on becoming the leader within. Right. And, and you're not and, a leader without for, those relationships. And you're not a leader without those relationships. Mm. And for me, I was very fortunate. I mean, I say in the book, and, I, and I'm dead serious about this, many of the individuals that came across my leadership path, my journey, had confidence in you before I had confidence in myself. Right. So they saw, uh, they gave me a chance to experiment, to fail, and to grow. But when I thought about what set them apart, and I had lots of these conversations with self in the writing of the book, what set these people apart from others was how they showed up every day and they how they engaged every day. So, And what I conclude that these people were human beings and that they were meaning makers, if you will. And it was through their actions uh, of empathy and higher purpose and shared meaning that gave me the strength to experiment and become the leader that I became. So it was really about how others viewed you that made you feel safe to be able to, I guess, try on different clothes, so to speak, of what leadership really meant to you personally. That's a very good way of framing it. And I know you and I had a conversation a while back about a a very interesting schematic from the nature of work where they talk about the psychological safety. And I think what these people provided me was that psychological safety. Mm. And, And how did they do that? Well, it was through active listening. It was through their empathy. It was about allowing me to be vulnerable, but at the same time, really encouraging me to continue to fine-tune my self-awareness and self-reflection skills. Right. So... And to grow both inside, and by growing inside, grow outside as the leader I wanted to be. So these, these people who believed in you, the type of leader they demonstrated to be was really about one who cared about, you know, not just you as a worker, but you as a person, you as a leader, you as a, in, 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 as a you know, father, husband, in, in your multiple roles in life. No question. And I think they also truly understood that organizations, regardless of what the organization is titled, regardless of what is the product that they deliver, that organizations are human systems and made up of many dynamic and emergent human subsystems. Mm. 
So not only the personal side, but also understanding the system side. And it's about a human system. And going back again to my library of leadership books, all kinds of wonderful models and templates and competency frameworks. But what I found was missing was the human face of leadership. Right. That personal piece. And I, I also had a lot of conversation with self again in writing the book about asking over and over again, is leadership different today than it was 35 years ago when I started my journey of leadership? Mm. <clears throat> and what did you come and to? I came to the conclusion that leadership is not different. What is different is the context in which leadership is now exercised. Right. And what I mean by that, over that 35-year period, speed brought by cell phones and internet and email and technology and artificial intelligence, boundaries completely opened up because of world globalization. Right. It, a context that we're in now, which is constant change, including the nature of work and the kind of blurring of boundaries that used to be safe and that societal forces of inequality and urbanization all leading to a volatile, uncertain, ambiguous, and complex organizational structures. Mm -hmm. so, so, so then is, is leadership actually, is that leadership, that if leadership has stayed constant, is it actually more important now, given the context change? Or is it, was it just as equally as important 35 years ago when you first started? Well, I think it's more important. And without getting into, you know, the, the three or the 10 competencies that all leaders have to have, I think the, the separation between good and great leadership is a lifelong commitment to fine-tuning environmental intelligence because that gives you a good understanding of global boundaries between profit and private and non-profit mm -hmm. societal forces going back to your notion that you raised earlier relationship building across those boundaries and then going to the human side um, an ongoing growth in openness of what I talk about in the book, openness of heart, mind, and will. Yes. It often gets lost in our new complexity because of the notion of the quick fix mm. as opposed to the steady pace forward with change. Well, and if you don't have the relationship or the trust, there will be no fix. There will be no fix. Right. You will, you, will, you will create the law of unintended consequences and all kinds of new challenges will spring up on you because you haven't factored in the human side, the relationship side. So, okay, we have all these books about how to be a leader. What's missing is the human side of it. So here's a question. Do you believe that people can learn the skill of being a leader? 
or do you think it's just something people have or they don't? I think you can learn it, but I don't think you can learn it by reading a book. Mm-hmm. I say that very clearly in my book. It's not what's on the pages that's important. It's what you take inside and what you do with it. And again, I, when I think about my journey, I was lucky that I had individuals who had confidence in me and allowed me to learn, allowed me to experiment, allowed me to fail, allowed me to grow, allowed me to muck up. Right. And that's where you really learn if you anchor it on ongoing self-reflection and asking yourself, okay, that didn't work. What was my contribution? What could I have done differently? What will I do differently in the future if a similar situation arises? And what will I learn from that? Right. So what was your big aha then? Like, so you clearly have gone through, this has been a lifelong journey, right? Uh, and I think, no yeah. And, and for many people, you know, when you're, when you're done learning, you're done. It's like, you have to just, you have to keep learning. That's the essence of being human in many ways, right? So as you think back, what was your big, or did you have some big ahas along the way that kind of started shifting your thinking about leadership towards this more, oh, it's really about the relationships and the head and the heart and the soul altogether? Oh, I think there were many aha moments along the journey. If, if I was to choose one that at various points on my journey, um, had a pretty significant imprint on my existing management and leadership style and what I had to do to move forward to deal with, again, the complexity of the context, Mm -hmm. which I was trying to bring leadership to. It would be the simple notion of letting go of my personal shackles. Hmm. And so what does what that do mean? I mean? Yeah. Yeah. What do I mean? Well, letting go of my ego, letting go of the pretending to know it all. Right. Letting go of the illusion of control because of my title. The, the paying attention to my vulnerabilities, my limitations. Um, looking in the mirror at self and coming to a conclusion that I'm only good in spots. Right. And there's a whole pile of areas I'm not very good at. And the day that I really began to truly embrace that was the day I became liberated. Because what it allowed me to do was for the first time, stop pretending not wearing that false mask of knowing it all and really beginning to understand if I utilize the brilliance around me, I can become even a stronger leader. It almost and that and that surrounding myself with confident people, they no longer became a threat to my career. They actually were a fundamental piece of my development as a leader. So it sounds like a combination of, I'm going to call it leadership therapy, 
um, coaching either externally or within yourself on, you know, understanding where you stood and really elevating and building a, elevating a team, building a team and elevating a team. No question. Right. No question. I mean, building and elevating a team, that's, that's kind of interesting because, um, and just the notion of team. And when you think about it, and I, and I think about the early, the various phases of my development, of course, in the early years, going back to that, wearing that mask of knowing it all, well, you're trying to knock down the doors and get recognized and build your career and move up that hierarchy, that ladder of, so, of so-called influence and control, right? Right. And so you're competing. And, and how do you compete? Well, you, uh, you compete by winning. Winning the job, winning, winning the competition, uh, winning the next directorship, the next VP. And then it's no longer satisfied just to be the VP because you want to be the senior VP and you want to be the executive VP. Mm-hmm. So that whole notion of winning, and if you're going to be winning, it's very difficult to say, well, I'm kind of weak in these areas. You have to continually demonstrate that you're an expert. Right. What's interesting is you frame that because I think that is such a common, if I look across, if I look across many, um, many careers, um, lawyers, you know, very similar, very competitive, competitive, get in, um, that winning mentality, even, even within law firms, um, doctors, hard to get in, you compete for your resident, you compete for your residency, for your specialty, for your fellowship, and then you get there and you're supposed to work with others. Um, you know, accountants, same thing, you know, a business school, how, how competitive is business school? So we're put in these situations and we're taught that we have to win and be right because we're tested on it. And then we're put into the workplace and we're told we have to cooperate. Yeah, and it's kind of, that's a very good point, and it goes back to my earlier point about the mentors that I really paid attention to. Yes, they had their own expertise, but what they really brought by showing up in their presence, they won. They elevated expertise, mm. elevating a team. Yeah, so which is a whole so- bunch of expertise. <laughs> yeah, I got it. So they were masters at leveraging the collective of drawing the best out of people and then setting them free. But I came to the conclusion the only way that they could get to setting people free, they had to set themselves free. Right. And to set themselves free, they had to become honest with who they are or who they were, or more importantly, who they wanted to become. Right. And who they weren't, probably. And who they weren't. And I, I will never be this. Mm-hmm. I will never be that. But I can be great at this element or this capacity or this competency. And having recognized that, who do I have to surround myself now with to make me whole? 
So and you say I, it and it sounds... In that direction, I became much stronger as a leader because I had a team around me to make me even stronger as a leader. Mm. So then you say it and it sounds very easy. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. But it's not, clearly, or we'd have a whole bunch of really great leaders. Um, so you talk about, you know, things like the leadership traps and, and different things we, or different ways that we behave that we think we should behave. Yeah. Is there any, you know, you are well into your career. You've yeah. now had a whole career to reflect on. Is there any way to help people get get to a better leadership style where they they have let go are there any ways to do that faster or do you think it's just part of the journey i think it's part of the journey but i think the journey also begins with an understanding that it's all about right Mm -hmm. it's like eating in the yang so expertise you're using the example of the lawyer the accountant the doctor of course do not give up on your expertise but how do you use that expertise in concert with others to elevate the collective expertise? Mm. Don't, don't put away your drive to be a winner. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't be so obsessed with winning that you do destroy the team. Right. So it's, so it, it's about honoring who you are but also honoring who others are. You got it. It's, it's a trap and we all fell into it. I, I fall, fell into it often. The, the micro and the micro and the macro trap. People talk about, well, let's not micromanage. I get it, but there has to be some balance in micromanage. And, right. and likewise, <clears throat> macro. Because if you don't pay attention to details, the details can come back and kill you. So it's trying to find the balance, but at the same time in finding the balance, appreciate, accept, illustrate, promote, talk about the teamness, talk, build the relationship patterns to become healthy patterns between those that you're working with, for, and potential. So it really is about the whole the how understanding how you fit into the sum of the parts no question and, and as i said earlier if if you're not spending time and checking in on sort of self-awareness and self-reflection i don't know how you get there and so mm-hmm. if you're asking about what guidance and counsel would i give to an emerging leader, spend time on self-reflection, honest self-reflection. So how do you do that in an organization? Because you did describe today's environment has shifted. Leadership, what you need is, is stayed the same, and that self-reflection is a big part of that. But the environment is such a, a task now, immediate focus how does how do you balance again back to the con- how do you balance those two well leadership is not easy work so if 
if you want to be a leader, you're going to have to make time to develop as a leader. And it can't all be done at work. Learn, work is your kind of learning lab of mm-hmm. experimentation, risk-taking, demonstrating courage, fine-tuning those relationship skills, which begin with fine-tuning your listening skills as opposed to your countering skills. Um, I mean, what I found often on a personal note in my own development in the early days, my listening was was listening to counter, mm-hmm. both to listening to hear and to understand. And again, when I think about the mentors who showed up every day on a real human way, they showed up and they were listening. And they were listening to understand. They were observing to understand, not to blame but to find right. opportunity for growth in the organization or the project or the initiative or whatever they were looking at at the time. Well, and truly authentically listening is actually really hard to do because we don't do it naturally. We don't do it naturally. I mean, no, we don't. We, we, we're, it's almost like we are conditioned to listen, but develop your countering strategy at the same time. Mm. Well, it's almost that seek to understand first, isn't it? Question. Think about meetings that you've been in, and, and hopefully others will, who will be listening to this will, will reflect upon. Think about meetings where you've got a mixture of individuals around the table, and there's one or two people who are your quiet thinkers, and they're listening, and they're listening. They're not part of the first 5, 10, 15 minutes of the conversation. And then at the appropriate time, they raise their voice. And there's usually a series of questions that they're asking or observations. And all of a sudden, they're ha, right? Mm-hmm. And they, are, they bring that, that magic into the conversation because they have been truly listening to the conversation. They haven't been listening to counter immediately. They want to hear the full story. Right. They want an appreciation of the complexity of the issue. Right. We'll start our conversation. They want an appreciation of the context in which the live issue that is now the subject of the discussion, what is that context like? Which is a very different intention. So listening with intentionality... Um, you know, I think we often listen for things that, oh, that resonates for me. Or that's kind of like me. Or we listen for solutions yeah. or we listen to like kind of dig in and ask questions or we listen for counter, as you've added. If you listen to understand, it actually changes how you listen and what you notice and attend to. No question. I mean, if you go in with, I have to understand this. I have to get an appreciation of the context. I have to be able to feel and see the system implications. That's going to change how your ears are receiving the information, right? Mm-hmm. The challenge of going back to how difficult this is, I mean, using, if you will, technology as the metaphor, um, our challenge is we all live a rich life in our heads. <laughs> yes, we sure do. 
And boy, we're really smart. <laughs> you got it. In our hard drives, uh, we have created them. Mm-hmm. And we direct. We, as I say in the book, we direct, we edit, and we act in our own personal dramas. And our hard drives are exp- are basically shaped by our personal experiences. And just like the computer in our hard drives, we develop software that knock out viruses that we don't want to hear about. Mm-hmm. Right? And we have great coping mechanisms to protect. Absolutely. And and what we're what we're really asking and through listening is open up. <laughs> right. It's like an open and, source. Yeah, and for a lot of folks, that is bloody scary. So it really goes back to that brain function in many ways. And I think of the neuro, like if I think about the neuroscience and how our brain works, we're like, we're built to detect a threat. And no question. And when you have, when you're looking to, you know, when you're listening to counter, you're listening as if there's a threat. And so the question is, how do you quiet down that amygdala so that you, you are in your, you know, you're in your prefrontal cortex, you're thinking, um, and you're relaxed. And, and that's the psychological safety that I think people talk about, is that being in that prefrontal cortex. No question. And, and just on that, I mean, one of the, I've had a number of detours in, in my professional life and for a period of time, I was the chief negotiator for the province of British Columbia for healthcare collective agreements with the unions. And when I think back, the gift that I was given through the five, six years I spent at bargaining tables negotiating on behalf of the government, I really began to fine tune my listening skills because in negotiations, in labor negotiations, the first 40, 50 days is theater. Mm. The union has been waiting for four years to come to the bargaining table and put all their grievances about management on the table. And as a bargainer, you have to allow that to happen. Right. But in the process, you have to ask questions repeatedly to find out what's really at issue, what's really important to the union. And so I learned the art of asking questions. And to me, that's a crucial skill that leaders need to develop because that in combination with listening begins to unpack the complexity that I had talked about earlier. So if you can listen well and ensure that you're truly, that actually sends a message that you value someone, you care about what they say, and you're, you understand or you're trying to. You know, that, that's a very, very interesting observation because one of the things I learned privately f- through this relationship with the unions, the number of union leaders who said to me, I just want to thank you on behalf of our union because many of the issues we brought to the bargaining table were issues that we had to bring because our 
our union membership was so angry with management, but you never shut us down. Hmm. You listen, right? Yes. And so on your point, so what was I really demonstrating by listening? Empathy. Yeah. And then you can ask a question. And empathy, and empathy doesn't mean I'm going to accept and agree to all your proposals. Right. Yes. Yes. Empathy means he's listening. He's trying to understand. And through that process, we might be able to find a path forward, which would maybe be completely different than our original demand. Mm -hmm. And what will allow the union to make that shift was the empathy through listening that we were demonstrating on the management side in this very volatile at times toxic environment. Well, and if you can't, it's interesting as, they, as you frame it that way, because you had to let them be heard. Like you had to listen yeah. and let them be heard. And then, you know, and, and the questions can only come after somebody is heard because then they know they're valued. If you jump right into questions, that, that ramps, that ramps things up. That actually makes it feel like you're being, you know, interrogated, not heard. No question. And so what you learn over, and again, that's a very good point. Earlier, too, too, for me, I was moving to questions too quickly without setting the table. I, I, I had an expression through bargaining that I've taken beyond bargaining, and that is to dine at the table, you first have to set the table. So if I, if I got too impatient and rushed my questioning their interpretation would be quite different. If I listen to them and then begin to stage my questions in an appropriate way, they have a different characterization of me and the management team on the other side of the table. Right. Which really is an art. It's an art and, and it's, it's, an, it's an art that, yes, there are, there are pieces in books you can read getting to yes, all of that, but it's really about experiencing it and having the courage to try and again, reflecting on when it didn't work and analyzing and saying to yourself, okay, that didn't work very well. Why? Right. And, and what can I do differently next time? And then having mentors who you can go to and bounce ideas by. I remember, and it's in the and negotiations said to me that in my toolbox for negotiating skills, I really only have one tool, and that is my word. And if you ever mm. misplay your word, you may never be able to get that trust back. Man, mm. we have all seen that in leadership, correct? And then the, then the second advice, he said, you can bruise the union's ankles in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the conversation, but never, ever bruise their face. How many times have we seen leaders in a meeting bruise the face of a director or a manager in the heat of the moment? Oh, Think of the yeah. signal that it sends to the organization. Think of the signal it sends to that individual. 
think about the human hard drive in that individual. Mm -hmm. Think about what that individual may harbor in terms of I'm going to get back at that individual in one way or another. Well, and if they haven't felt they've been treated fairly, I mean, all kind. that's where, you know, that is where burnout, absenteeism, you know, right. Well, that's that's when you get turnover, right? Like exactly what you're describing is when people leave. No question. And so <clears throat> for, for me, what all of those experiences began to shape for me was the importance of organizational culture. But more importantly, and we've talked about it over and over again, and to me it's a common theme in, in my book, um, four critical mindsets that I think all leaders must pay attention to day in, day out in the first relationships. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is is connects with that one, and that's a what I call an identity mindset. And what I mean by that, it's not about me, it's about us. That goes back right. to what we talked about earlier about the difference between using expertise and that winner attitude for self versus using that expertise and winner attitude about us as a collective team. Mm -hmm. And that becomes an organizational identity mindset. And then the third one, which I, I found over the years, and I still find fascinating how there are still too many leaders who see information as a control point. Yes. And I, over my career, saw information as the tool for relationship building. Not the control point, but is the tool for relationship building. Well, and the nefarious side of it, I mean, why do we think we use gossip? It, it connects us to each other. Yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. The chatter, think of the meeting you go into that no one wants to put the information on the table. Everybody knows it's available. No one wants to talk about the big elephant. So when do they talk about it? At the water cooler, mm -hmm. coffee break. Yeah. As opposed to when it should be happening. And that gets me to the fourth mindset. And that is, I, I, I find it interesting that every organization has these wonderful labels you know, people are our greatest asset and they're nicely framed and they're on the wall and underneath it would be a series of value propositions that anchor that notion that people are our greatest asset, right? Mm -hmm. There's part of me that says, are those the most overworked, undervalued words in the leadership vocabulary? Because if we truly believe in that mantra, then we should be believing that the skills, the talents are there in every organization for that organization to be great. The challenge is though, we don't have enough leaders who are paying attention to the, what I would frame as the emotional and systemic barriers that get in the way of lifting those talents or as mm -hmm. you said in the book, creating the learning organization. Yeah. You cannot yeah. get to a learning organization unless leaders 
pay attention to the emotional and systemic barriers of people bringing their talents to the table. Well, because you can't learn if you don't feel safe and if you don't feel heard, respected, and listened to as a person, then you don't you don't contribute. And and so it really is about that empathetic act of listening as a starting point. No question. It goes back to the schematic yeah. I talked about earlier from the nature of work where they they mm-hmm. talked about you want innovation and change. You have to create a psychological safety net and that will only happen again based on our previous conversation through active listening through empathy through showing vulnerability and active listening empathy and vulnerability only happen if we are self-aware and self-reflective as a leader and that takes time and development. And so it has to start with you. It has to start with you. And it also has to, again, within a context, get out of this microwave mentality that we have. That, you know, if I take a few courses, I can become a leader. Well, it'll help you, but it's not. It's not that <laughs> right? Or, you know, if I just if I take this master's program um I'm okay. I'm okay. I, I'll be able to lead. No, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a lifelong journey. The other piece that we haven't talked about, and I, I, I have been on this crusade for many years, and it, I devote a fair bit of time to it in the book. And that is, you know, we, we have these wonderful constructs called organizational charts. Yes. series of black lines and boxes built in a pyramid of the people, the so-called, the experts at the top, and then everything drifts down to the bottom. But to me, that is not where the organization hums. It's an outdated view, I think, of what organizations and leadership is about. Because for a lot of people, again, me included in the early part of my career, it's where, where was my name on that organizational chart? How yes. high up in that chart was my name? And so yeah. the chart began to define me and my value to the organization. And I began to realize, wait a minute here, we got this all wrong. It's really what happens in the white space and how I operate in that white space by bringing deeper meaning and purpose in terms of my growth, but also the organizational growth. Right. It's a place where personal relationships and loyalties exist. It's it's the place where interactions happen. It's a place where we produce misunderstood and misinterpreted information and things fall through the cracks. So that white space is really the place we have to play, but it's also the place where right now we're losing things. You got it. And so when we talk you talked just briefly about, you know, burnout and turnover in healthcare. It's because of the unhealthy white space that creates the turnover and the burnout. Right. It's the white space that creates, I mean, absenteeism is one thing. And it, it is a serious issue, be, 
particularly absenteeism driven by anxiety and stress. But to me, the other side of that coin is even more dangerous, and that's presenteeism. Mm -hmm. And that's people who show up but are cognitively impaired by the culture or the organization or the leadership that provides them leader leadering on a day-to-day basis. Well, I've heard, I've heard friends when they're completely disenfranchised from work, they just say, well, I'm going to go in and today's an easy money day. I'm just going to make money today. Yeah, you got it. And so there's a couple things that happen there. I mean, the individual is losing because that's not why they joined the organization. Mm -hmm. And the organization is losing. Absolutely. So I have to say your book is a refreshing read and I thoroughly um, encourage others to, to get a copy. Um, I downloaded onto my computer directly and read it that way. And so it's a nice, easy way to get it without having to wait in this microwave culture that we have. Um, <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your perspective um, and this different way of looking at leadership. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can keep spreading the word because I think, um, I think you highlight some really important things that are missing these days. All right. Take care. You take care. Talk to you later. Bye. So that is our show for today. We are sponsored by Thought Architects, a values-based company that supports physicians and clinic owners with human resource management, leadership skill building, and improvement support. Interested in learning more? Go to thoughtarchitects.ca. Do you have some thoughts, some ideas, some questions, some suggestions? Please do share them. You can email us at info at thoughtarchitects.ca. And we will see you next month on The B-Side. Have a great day.